My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out, and were saved. And you they trusted, and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions dead tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. Packs of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Our setting reading is from Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. They led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, 
come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is the word of the Lord. cross. It was meant to horrify the world. It was meant for humiliation. It was meant to last for days. It was meant for slow asphyxiation. It was meant to prolong torture. It was the Roman soldier's job. It was meant to be used by Caesar, but instead, it was used by God. It was meant to stop a movement, but instead, it became the way. It was meant to act on fear, but instead, it awakened faith. It was meant to be vicious and violent, but instead, it became our peace. It was meant to uproot hope. But instead, it became the seed. It was meant to punish captives. But instead, it unleashed freedom. It was meant to build up Rome. But instead, it built God's kingdom. It was meant to discourage rebels. It was meant to stop insurrection. It was meant to put down Jesus. But instead, it set up his resurrection. It was meant to jeer and mock him. But instead, it was his glory. It was meant to erase a chapter, but instead, it became the story. It was meant to hold up convicts, but instead, it raised up a king. It was meant to shut our mouth, but instead, it's why we sing. It was meant to be a judgment, but instead, it became our mercy. It's why the song of heaven is the lamb. The lamb is worthy. It was meant to kill an enemy, crush dissenters and diversion, but instead it became the banner of God's love for every person. It was meant to be appalling, nailing hands and feet to wood. It was meant to be used for evil, but instead it was used for good. 
It was meant to be a symbol of God's assassination. But instead, it became the symbol of Jesus' invitation. Come to the cross. There's the invitation. Come to the cross. Building up towards Good Friday and we had read for us from Mark's gospel. Mark's account of the crucifixion. He invites us to come to the cross. I've done that many, many times. I'm so used to these events that I wanted them to hit home. I wanted them to hit home for me, wanted them to hit home for you. So I looked at various videos and a number of them graphically portray what Mark describes here. And I'll be honest with you, I couldn't bear to watch them. And I, I couldn't possibly think that I could show them to you. So horrific were they. It is brutal. But Mark in these words wants us to think and to see. He slows down the narrative. So what do you see as we come together to see the cross? One level, if you were walking past the events in Jerusalem, you'd have seen events like this before. It was not uncommon for people to be crucified publicly as a warning against others committing serious offenses. And as you walk past, you'd assume, here's a criminal being executed for a crime. There's no doubt what was meant to happen. The religious and the Roman authorities regarded Jesus as a threat, a nuisance, and they were determined to snuff him out. What do you see? And what does Mark want us to see? He describes the events, but the way he describes them draws our attention to what is really going on, and the two crucial themes, which actually run all the way through Mark's gospel. The question of identity, who is this who hangs on the cross? And the question of purpose, what's really going on here? Identity, con man or king? Mark's gospel from the very beginning draws attention to the identity of Jesus, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then the events that Jesus controls, these remarkable miracles, they're raising the question, who is this? In that famous moment when the, the storm was raging, and with just a word, Jesus says, peace, be still. And the disciples say, wow, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And after his disciples have been following him for, for a number of months, maybe a couple of years, he turns to them on one occasion and says, who do, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist come up from the dead. Others say you're one of the prophets. And he says, crucial question. You'll never be asked a more important question than this. What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the, you're the Christ. You're God's king. 
And then as we've been following these dramatic chapters, we saw Jesus on a donkey riding in, in Jerusalem. But very unking-like form of transport. This is hardly a golden carriage. But the crowds line the street. They hail him as the king. Is that who he is? And that becomes the issue in the trial. Because, of course, if he is the Christ, he's claiming to be the divine son of God, claiming to forgive sins, the religious authorities regarded him as an absolute threat, a heretic. And if he's the king, well, isn't there another king in Jerusalem, King Herod? And King Herod is just a puppet king, the ultimate king, surely the emperor, surely this is not only a religious threat, but a political threat. And so the key issue in the trial is, who is he? Before Pilate, chapter 14, verse 61, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? You said it. Before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, 15, verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? And then Pilate coming out before the people, what do you want me to do? with the one you call the King of the Jews. Again, that title, Mark is drawing to our attention again and again. What do you want me to do with the King of the Jews? Crucify! They shouted. And so we come to the section we're looking at today. The soldiers lead him into the palace. And there they put a purple robe on him. Purple is the imperial color. They're mocking him. They twist together a crown of thorns. They ram it on his head. And then they begin to call out, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. And of course, he didn't look like a king. Con man, more likely. He knew he wasn't the Messiah, surely. He's just claiming to be. Or maybe crazy. Genuinely convinced. And here they are, laughing at him. Clearly not a king. It's a dramatic change in the narrative of the gospel. If you looked at the gospel earlier, and if you haven't read Mark's gospel, there's no better introduction of the Christian faith. But in the early chapters, there's a rapid pace, as Mark tells us. And so, and then, and then, and then, and then. And in virtually every section, the sentence begins, or the paragraph begins, Jesus, Jesus, he, he. He's the man of action. With great authority, marching through a world that's damaged by human sin and evil, and as it were, just demanding change. Miracle after miracle. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the dead are raised, storms are still. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But now we find he's not the subject. He's not the man of action at all. Beginning of the chapter, verse 1, we read that they bound Jesus and led him away. Just imagine him trussed up like a piece of meat. And from now on in the rest of the chapter, he's seemingly powerless. He's bundled from place to place. I've seen it at the back of the court. You get a security van comes along, and there is the criminal, handcuffed. And sometimes if the photographers are there, there's a hood over his head, and he's bundled into court. 
And here is Jesus, the man of action, in control, seemingly out of control, bundled from place to place. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away. There's that word again. And they mock him. And then verse 19, this is the bit that as I watched the videos, I stopped at this point. I couldn't bear it anymore. And so often we read the words and we're so used to them, we don't actually imagine what's actually happening. But listen to this, verse 19. And see it if you, bear, if you can bear it in your head. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff. Think of a club. Not just on the body, that would be bad enough, but on the head again and again. And if, if that is not enough, we then read, they spat on him. And then they fall on their knees and they pay homage in mock adoration. Not enough to spit on him. They've got to keep laughing. And then they take off the purple robe. They finish with that joke. They give him back his other clothes. And then notice that word again at the end of verse 20. They led him out to crucify him. And I'm thinking, do something, Jesus. Do something. This is the man who just flicks his fingers and things happen. But he does nothing. And then the man, Simon of Cyrene, carries his cross and he arrives at Golgotha, the place of the skull. They offer him wine and myrrh. That would have been common practice alcohol to dull the pain, but he refuses. And then they crucified him. But by this stage, he may well be completely naked, or just with a loincloth. And the soldiers who've been enjoying, laughing at him, oh, they're finished with him, their job is done now, they're not interested in Jesus anymore, there's just one valuable thing left, his clothes, and maybe they'll get a, a little bonus out of it. And so they cast lots to see who'll get his clothes. And then as he hangs on the cross, the mocking continues. It even intensifies as one after the other come and have a good jeer. This was the one who claimed to be the king to the passers-by, quoting and, and uh, picking up and using to taunt him some words that he had used. So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. And the religious leaders, not enough to have passed sentence on him, they've got to see it's actually being carried out. And so they came and mocked him. <laughs> he saved others. Can't save himself. And the two criminals, the rebels on either side of him, they also heaped insults on him. And I want to say, say something, Jesus. He said so much. He's always got just the right word to say. And on previous occasions in the Gospels, when people come and try and trip him up with some clever word, he's always got just the right thing to say. And now he says nothing. Who 
is he? Con man? It's looking like it. Or crazy man, sadly deluded into thinking he really is the king. It's looking like it. King? It's certainly not looking like that. So at one level, it's not surprising that most of his fellow Jewish contemporaries, knowing that he died on the cross, concluded he couldn't have been God's Messiah. Muslims, you may know, honor Jesus as a prophet, a very great prophet. But they reject any sense that he might be the divine son of God. But even as a prophet, they conclude that God would never have allowed him to die like this. So Muslims don't believe Jesus actually died. Unthinkable. A prophet, such a great prophet, could die in this way, let alone the divine son of God, the king. And the contemporary skeptics, you worship him who dies in shame on a cross. So what do you see? But Mark has framed this horrific account in such a way that we're meant to see something else. On three occasions, Jesus has predicted that he must suffer and die. The first occasion was when Peter says, you are the Christ. And then straight away, Mark tells us, he then began to teach that the Son of Man, as Jesus, must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and on the third day rise again. Three times he makes that precise prediction. And then finally he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane just before he's arrested. And you remember, we saw it a few weeks ago, He's agonized. He knows what is the call of his heavenly father. He said, Lord, if if it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Shortly afterwards, he was arrested. The disciples are horrified, but he says these words, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Which scriptures? or multiple scriptures. But surely one is very clearly in mind, Isaiah chapter 53, which speaks about the coming servant, God's king who will suffer and die. As Mark describes these details, surely he has this verse in mind, Isaiah 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Do something, Jesus. But he didn't, because he was obeying the will of his heavenly Father, and so he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Say something, Jesus. But he didn't, because he was fulfilling what Isaiah the prophet said oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Surely Jesus, and certainly Mark, has in mind Psalm 22, the psalm that we had, at least the beginning of the psalm that we had read earlier, about a righteous sufferer who doesn't deserve to suffer. And yet, verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults. Or verse 18, they divide my clothes among them cast lots for my garment. This is not a con man. 
This is not a crazy man. This is God's king fulfilling his destiny. And Mark writes with heavy irony. Here are these soldiers mocking him. But they're actually proclaiming the truth. In a few weeks' time, King Charles will be crowned. He'll put on his royal robes. He'll then process around the streets of London. He'll get to Westminster Abbey. He will sit on a throne. And then finally, he'll come to the balcony of Buckingham Palace. And as it were, we're told, behold your king. And Mark is saying, look at Jesus. He comes into Jerusalem, not in a golden carriage, but on a donkey, hailed as king. He's then given royal purple robes. He's enthroned on a cross. And Mark is saying, behold, behold your king king. This is a king we can trust. There's a huge suspicion of power. Perhaps more than in recent decades, a massive suspicion of power, and for understandable reason, because so often power is abused, and yet here is awesome power. Read the early chapters of the gospel. But a power that is not abused, a power that is given up for others. He's a king we can trust. Here's a king who understands. I've often heard people talk to me about horrors that they've experienced in their life. And, and I find it difficult because my life has been comparatively so easy. And I think I'm, I'm going to try and get it, but it's so hard. And do they really believe that I could possibly get it. And maybe you're here today and you're experiencing horrific things at the moment. And there's a lot of pain in the world. Isolation, rejection, mocking, injustice, physical pain. And the Lord Jesus Christ has faced every one of those things to the greatest and most intense degree. He gets it. And here's a king who cares. A king who did all that for you and for me. Which takes us to the next theme. Identity, con man or king? Well, he doesn't look like a king. But Mark is saying he really is fulfilling his destiny. And so what is that destiny? Purpose? Tragedy? Looks like it, doesn't it? Or triumph? The turn of the millennium, which of course was meant to celebrate 2,000 years since Jesus was born. The Millennium Dome was erected in London, now I think the O2 Arena, and it was going to be a, essentially a fun fair. And lots of fun and games going on, and then it was pointed out that surely we should be celebrating the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. So as a kind of late addition, a faith zone was added on. And in the exhibition of the faith zone were these words about Jesus. He was a good teacher who died tragically young. Tragedy? I reckon the women watching verse 14, 41 would have thought tragedy. 
It's remarkable how Mark mentions their names and a whole group of women who follow him, caring for his needs. And in a patriarchal society in which women were often regarded as second-class citizens, this was remarkable. He was a man who loved them, honored them, respected them. They trusted him. They loved him. They served him. And now he was dying. Tragedy. But this was meant to be. It was prophesied. And in verses 33 to 39, there's a a shift in the narrative. In the section before then, all the focus is on the executioners, the accusers, and what they're doing. They're the active players. But now there's no mention of them. Jesus is hanging on a cross. And Mark draws our attention to three details. And they are remarkable clues as to what is really going on, what God is seeing. For a start, there's the cloud of verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the last couple of chapters, if you were filming the scene, it would have been darkness for most of that time, just occasional glimpses of light. But these horrific events took place at night, appropriately. It was at night that Jesus was arrested. It was at night that he went through his trial by the Sanhedrin, very likely. It was at night before Pilate as well. But now it's midday, 12 o'clock, and yet darkness covers the land. In the Old Testament, when darkness comes in the middle of the day, that is a sign of the judgment of God of the ten plagues when the people of Israel were in Egypt. The final plague was the plague of the Passover, the, 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 the plague of the firstborn rather. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness covering the land, God's judgment on it. It's mentioned in a number of prophets. Here's Amos chapter 8 and verse 9 where Amos is prophesying a time in the future when God's judgment will come. And God says, in that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So here's a sign of God turning away in anger. And if there's a God worth believing in, isn't it essential that there should be times when he will turn away in, as it were, disgust and horror and judgment at some of the things that are happening in the world today? That we demand a God who's not just going to continually shine his, his light, as it were, of approval on what's happening. Think of the horror of what happened in Liverpool when that child was gunned down. The case was finalized this week and the man found guilty. Or the horrors in that school in Nashville this week. Or the hourly horrors in Ukraine. And do we want a God who just, as it were, carries on smiling, blazing his light? Don't we demand a God who will turn away in disgust, in judgment? And isn't that what I deserve? But the way I've often pushed him out of my life and chosen the darkness and lived in darkness. Mark is saying there's something here about judgment. 
clown. But then the cry. Now at last, Jesus says something. At three in the morning, in the afternoon, verse 34, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I was first investigating Christian faith, those words really troubled me. Because I thought, Jesus is meant to be the Son of God. And yet it seems here is his moment of greatest testing, and it sounds as if he loses his faith. But then someone pointed out to me that this is a quotation. And you would have heard it, of course, in that first reading from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very psalm that speaks about a righteous sufferer who's mocked and insulted and whose clothes are divided and, and cast lots for. And whenever Jesus quoted the Old Testament, almost without exception, He's saying, this is pointing to me. I'm fulfilling this. And as he's hanging on the tree, on that cross, he's saying, I am that righteous sufferer of Psalm 22. Of all people who's ever lived, he was one who constantly lived in the blazing light of God's presence, never turned away from it. And therefore, God could never justly turn away from him, surely. So why is the darkness coming over Jesus as he hangs on the cross? Because this had to happen. It was the only way that God could blaze his light upon you and me who deserve that darkness. Because Jesus faced it in our place. The curtain is the final thing. Cloud, cry, curtain. Told Jesus breathed his last. And then verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not far away from Jesus where he hung on that cross was the temple. It dominated the horizon in, in Jerusalem. And there at the heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where God symbolically dwelt. And before the Holy of Holies was this magnificent, huge curtain, heavy curtain. And that curtain was saying, keep out, no entry, because God is holy, and we are not. But the moment Jesus died on the cross, taking the penalty that you and I deserve, that curtain was torn open. And suddenly there's a new sign saying, welcome, welcome. Come in. Do you remember the words of the video? It was meant to be used for evil, but instead it was used for good. It was meant to be a symbol of God's assassination, but instead it became a symbol of God's invitation. Come to the cross. Not a tragedy. To triumph. Chapter 15, 14 as well, dominated by darkness. Chapter 16 begins in a very different way. This is moving on to Easter Sunday, when Mary Magdalene went to anoint Jesus' body, and we're told it was very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. The light is shining again. 
Jesus didn't stay in the darkness of the grave. He rose again. Because Jesus faced darkness, we needn't stay in it. So your life need not be defined by the darkness of your circumstances. And maybe you're feeling they're very dark at the moment. Jesus entered darkness. He knows what it's like to be in darkness. But he didn't stay there. He went out the other side. He is with you in it. He doesn't promise to remove all those circumstances. But he rose again. And his resurrection is the guarantee that one day all the darkness, all the sin, all the suffering of the world will be finished with. There's hope in the darkness. Not only need we not be defined by the darkness of our circumstances, we need not be crushed by the darkness of our sins. Because the door is wide open. And it may just be that there are a few who would say, I don't think I've ever been through that wide open door. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. If you haven't done that, it's as simple as saying, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I deserve that darkness. But I'm so grateful that you faced it for me. And I come to you and ask you, please, to enable me to follow you as your friend. We'd love to help you do that. Do talk to a friend. Do talk to, to me or Glenn or someone else. For the rest of us, maybe you think, well, I've done all that. And wonderfully, we're in the light. And yet, how easily we sneak back, as it were, into the deeds of darkness. We don't belong there anymore, but we keep going back to them. And our shame, we can feel wouldn't be right to come back into the light. But the reality is, if we trusted in Jesus, whether we feel like it or not, we are in the light. He dealt with those sins. And now let's consciously live in the light of his presence. This is the king, not a con man. And the cross is a triumph. It's not a tragedy. Let's be quiet just for a moment and make our own prayers to God. questions or concerns, things you want to pray with someone, do talk to a friend, do talk to one of us. Now let me close with a prayer. Loving Father, how we praise you for Jesus. This King who gave up his power that we might be your friends. Who went into the darkness that we might no longer live in it and be defined by it. So help us to come into your light and to stay in that light, living with him, the Savior who died and is now alive. And we pray in his name. Amen.